Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In December of 2013, a press release appeared titled, Netflix Declares Binge-Watching is the New Normal. The release came, of course, from Netflix. At the time, 61% of what it referred to as TV streamers said they binge-watched regularly. In the years since, that number has gone off the charts. If you're not prepared to admit that as a society we're addicted, at least admit we're showing signs of some dependence. If you're not familiar with the term, Netflix originally defined binge-watching as viewing two or more episodes of a show in a single sitting. That definition has since been refined as a, a viewer completing at least one season of a show within seven days, even though most viewers watch one season within three days. Not judging, okay, just sharing the news. Age demographics show a widespread. While a binge-watching baby boomer uh, like me might stay glued uh, for up to four episodes at a time, uh, and I'd have to say, that's probably pretty accurate. Uh, millennials, late 20s to early 30-somethings, top the list at seven one-hour episodes in a single sitting. And they might do that every single week. There's a bit of psychology and physiology behind the numbers. In everyday terms, the psychologists might call it escapism. In a modern uh, day way, to, it's really a modern day way to cope with the stress of, of uh, by forgetting all about work and life for a time, I think. Physiologically, though, there's a behavior reward. Just like social media is designed to feed a steady succession of feel-good rewards to its users through a system of likes, once you become engaged with a character or a plot line on TV, your brain feeds you that same dopamine high, and the autoplay function helps keep you hooked. The reason I bring it up is because our Old Testament lesson this morning is pulled from a much long larger story. Uh, just one episode from one person's life in a saga linked to a promise of God that goes all the way back to his grandfather, even really beyond that. It's a story about God's involvement and his relationship with people that'll get you hooked and staying up late for more. And the Bible's filled with storylines just as binge-worthy. If people knew there were plot lines like this in the Bible, a lot more people would have read it by now. In fact, there's a thread about God's plan to Rescue us from ourselves that runs all the way through Scripture from beginning to end. Now, Jacob, the subject of today's lesson, uh, his life had been quite a journey. His mother's pregnancy with him was nothing short of miraculous, literal answer to prayer. But once Rebecca did find herself with child, she didn't have an easy go of it. Jacob and his twin brother Esau wrestled and struggled with each other even in the womb. When the babies finally made their appearance, Little Esau comes out first with Jacob right on his heel. Literally right on his heel. Jacob was holding on to one of Esau's heels. That's where Jacob's name came from. It means in the Hebrew, takes by the heel, or to put it a less literal way, um, cheater or, or supplanter. In the Bible, names carry a lot of baggage, and Jacob grew up to kind of appear to be the, the heel that he was named for. See, in his ancient society, the eldest brother got the goods. They got a double share of the inheritance, a prophetic blessing from his father before he died, and after his father died, he had the right to head up the clan. That didn't sit well with Jacob, the barely younger brother, or his mom, and they plotted to see that it never happened. Now, if this was a Netflix series, you'd already be hooked. 
Earlier in this episode, elder brother, the older brother Esau was pressured into selling his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of lentil stew after returning home from a hunt exhausted and famished. It was an epic fail, and God held him to it. Then Jacob tricks his blind, dying father into giving him the blessing that was meant for his brother by going to him in disguise. Esau is so angry, he vows that as soon as the required period of mourning is over, he's going to kill his brother. On his mother's advice, Jacob gets out of Dodge in a big hurry, journeying some distance to Uncle Laban's house, where he plans to hide out until his brother cools off. Along the way, God comes to him in a dream, a dream in which he sees angels ascending and descending between heaven and earth. But instead of lowering the boom for his dishonesty, God tells Jacob that he is going to bless him, just like his father promised when he thought he was Esau. Land, descendants, everything. Descendants like the dust of the earth, God promised. And you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will lead you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Only in the Bible would lightning not flash out of the sky and, and, and roast him for what he'd done to his brother. But then his brother had given it away. And it would be through Jacob's line that Jesus would one day be born. And that promise was first given to his grandfather Abraham, then to his father Isaac, and now it was passed on to Jacob. And the whole world has been blessed through them, through Jesus, through the forgiveness of sins that he made possible. You know, one of the things that makes God's word so totally, so totally believable is how brutally honest it is. And how it presents even so-called heroes of the faith, not only in their strengths, but with all their weaknesses and their family dysfunctions as well. You know, if God's hand wasn't in it, what follower, what believer would ever record this stuff without cleaning it up a little? But don't go to bed yet. At Uncle Laban's, our cheater meets his match. See, Laban turns out to be the con of all time. Jacob falls head over heels in love with his cousin Rachel, which was acceptable in those days and still may be in some part of the Smoky Mountains. But Uncle Laban makes him the deal of the centuries. He says, work for me for seven years and you can have her. Not having any other means to pay for, which was the, the custom of the time, Jacob agrees, gladly. Um, she's evidently worth the wait. And the years and the days fly by. Finally, the big day comes. There's lots of feasting and celebrating and wine. And then as the evening draws to a close, Uncle Laban brings his daughter to Jacob, all veiled up for her wedding night. The next morning, the Bible says, Behold, or we would say, Surprise! It was Leah, Rachel's older sister. Now, chalk it up to hormones, too much alcohol or whatever, but Jacob evidently didn't figure it out until after the marriage was consummated. He's more than a little beside himself, understandably. And Uncle Laban pleads that, well, it's just a matter of custom in his country to give away the oldest daughter first. Sorry about that, didn't you know? I'll tell you what, work for me another seven years, and you can marry the hot sister, Rachel. And he does. So now he's got 14 years invested, two wives, children, and not much else. He works out another deal with Uncle Laban to begin acquiring flocks and herds of his own. And even though his uncle does his best to cheat him again, God steps into the picture. And through some miraculous breeding techniques, Jacob becomes a wealthy man. And not just a family man anymore, but now a clan leader. Now he's been away from home for 20 years. His parents are both dead. 
and God tells him that it's time to head back to the land he promised him when he was first heading for the hills to get away from Esau. Our lesson this morning takes place along the river that borders the homeland. He's a little nervous about meeting his brother again, but it has been a long time, and besides, who could stay mad for 20 years? Still, just to be on the safe side, he sends a messenger on ahead with word that he's on his way. Well, word comes back that Esau's already saddled up and on his way out to meet him, along with 400 of his well-armed friends. It doesn't look good. But this isn't quite the same Jacob who passed this way 20 years before. The cheater, the schemer. This is the Jacob in whose life God has been working and molding and challenging to create a new character from the inside out. Honest, God-fearing, on a godly mission. And he prays a prayer that the old Jacob would never have prayed. Oh Lord, please rescue me from the hand of my brother Esau. I'm afraid that he's coming to attack me along with my wives and children. But you promise me I will surely treat you kindly and I will multiply your descendants until they become as numerous as the sands along the seashore. Too many to count. That's quite a humble prayer for somebody who used to be so bold. People can change if it's God who does the changing. He decides to grease, grease the machinery with a little brotherly love, a generous gift of goats, sheep, and donkeys, hundreds of them. He won't need them anyway, I suppose, if he's dead. He must have figured that. So he sends his family across the river then too, but without him. His brother surely wouldn't attack women and children, he reasons. Uh, he hopes anyway. And he spends the night alone um, just to see kind of how it all plays out. Sort of alone. Twenty years before, when he camped out, camped out under the stars, he slept like a baby. He dreamed beautiful, angelic dreams. But not this night. This is a very mysterious passage of scripture, by the way. Did he hear voices in the darkness? A snap of a twig or maybe uh, leaves rustling on the ground? Did he suddenly sense that he wasn't alone anymore? The hairs in the back of his neck stood up, maybe? So all scripture says is that a man appeared and that the two of them wrestled until the break of day. Not a dream this time. This wasn't wrestling with his pillow. This was the real deal. Scholars are all over the board about who this might have been, but we do get a clue from the Bible itself, in the book of the prophet Hosea, where it talks about Jacob. Chapter 12, it says, In the womb he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. The man Jacob was wrestling with sounds like the pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus, before he was born into the flesh. Uh, wouldn't be surprising because it's not the only time he makes an appearance in the Old Testament. Jesus was God for eternity, right? He took on flesh, and now he's God and man still even today. But before that, um, he, he could do stuff like this, and he does show up sometimes. Um, all his life. Uh, Jacob had struggled against God by the independent way that he walked his journey. And so, uh, without realizing it, he becomes part of God's plan, and God had a plan for his life. A plan he wasn't about to turn away from because it involved God's plan for the salvation of the whole world. Like each one of us, God or Jacob had wrestled with God his whole life. He wanted to do everything his way. And now, having been changed by that same God who refused to give up on him and let life teaching some hard lessons, he engages in one last bout. This one's not to see who will win, but rather to see who will finally, once and for all, give in to the greater. On true fashion, Jacob refuses to let go. 
All through the night they wrestled, Jacob clinging tightly for all he's worth to that angel, to God. It was a battle he could never have won. A mortal man could never have pinned a supernatural heavenly being. And to make that point clear, at sunrise, the man simply touches his thigh and dislocates the hip joint. And still Jacob hangs on, unable to fight any longer, but refusing to let go until he receives a blessing. And a blessing he gets from the greater to the lesser. What is your name, the angel asks. Jacob, he answers. But his name is saying, by virtue of what it means, uh, deceiver, cheater, heel. Not anymore, the angel tells him. And finally, Jacob realizes that his lifelong struggle hasn't been with his brother at all, or Uncle Laban, or with any man, but rather with God and God's plan for him. From now on, your name will be Israel. Israel means strives with God, or it's in another sense sometimes, a prince. And Jacob renames that place Peniel, or the face of God, because he saw God face to face and was spared. His whole orientation had been changed. Now, Jacob goes on to survive the reunion with his brother, beginning with a heartfelt apology. God's plan to save us stays on track. Uh, Jacob goes on to become the patriarch of the 12 tribes of the nation Israel. Happy endings all around, but pretty painful road to get there. That's a great story in and of itself, but there's, there's more here going on than just Jacob's story. Underneath his story is our story. Great insight into how God changes people, how he can change even a scoundrel, into a saint. You know, we all wrestle with life from time to time, don't we? And that can lead to a struggle with God because we tend to want to blame anyone or anything uh, on our, uh, about, our, about our troubles on anybody but ourselves. Uh, our boss, maybe, our friends, spouse, even God. But sometimes the root of our problems doesn't lie with any of those people. It's rooted here, rooted in our hearts. We might not even see it, but other people probably do, and God certainly does. Our all-powerful, all-knowing God can know us and our best future better than we ever could. And maybe he'll allow a little crisis in your life to get your attention. Not send it necessarily, but allow it. The world has enough potential crises lined up to get into your life already. Too many to expect you'll be able to dodge every one. God won't do it just because he's bored or because he wants to mess with you. In the big picture, he wants to help you. You know, we're not perfect people by nature, and we're not drawn to God by nature. And so we don't tend to change until our fear of change is exceeded by our level of discomfort. Does that make sense? Jacob knew that he was over his head in his wrestling match with the Lord, but he also knew now that his best hope was to cling to him no matter what. That's another step toward change, the commitment phase. It wasn't about winning the match. It was about surviving the, the battle. You know what winning at life is ultimately going to be? Going to sleep in faith here some night, waking up in heaven. And that's a gift from God by faith. The battle for that gift, the price paid, was won and fought at the cross. Surviving the daily battles until then is just a, a part of the journey through this fallen world. Now, Jacob was committed. He was as persistent as a woman standing before the judge in our gospel reading. He was willing to stick with his situation until he worked it out. Uh, it wasn't a situation he was enjoying, but it wasn't one he was going to let go and back off from either. The last 20 years, if they taught him anything at all, it was that God keeps his promises, that he'd been there with him through thick and thin and always would be. 
Now, God can turn our situation around for good. Maybe not according to our timeline. Maybe not according to our plan. But he sees us and he cares about us. I think some people miss the best in God's life, in their lives, God's best in their lives, because they tend to get frustrated. They walk away from him way too soon. Think about that. You know, we're talking about a God who exists in time and also uh, outside of time. Uh, he works, he's an imminent God in that he steps into our lives and acts accordingly, but he's also a transcendent God who, who exists over and above everything, eternal, always was and always will be. Um, so uh, don't let yourself get discouraged because you pray for something and, and turn around doesn't happen in the next 40 minutes. Uh, but when you're praying for something, you know, keep on praying. You wonder sometimes, didn't he hear me the first time? Sure he did. But prayer doesn't always work by changing God's mind. Sometimes it does its very best stuff by changing ours, by changing us. It tends to, to reorient us like it did Jacob, away from the mirror, away from ourselves, and back toward him, toward his face is the way the Bible says that. Uh, attitudes and actions, habits, fears, weaknesses that took years to develop may have to be peeled away a layer at a time. So don't give up. You know, stay committed by getting, to getting God's best by letting him reveal what's best. Only God can see around every corner of your future, behind every door. The last step we saw in Jacob's story was a confession, really, although it might not have sounded like one. You know, getting right with God, like we did at the beginning of our service today. The angel asked Jacob, what's your name? Why? He already knew his name. Um, but in order to achieve the change he was seeking, he needed Jacob to say it. Remember, names in the Bible often reflect character. He was asking, what kind of character are you? And Jacob told him, I'm a cheater, I'm a schemer, I'm a heel. Only after God got him to the point where he could admit his character flaws would he be ready to complete his overhaul. That's why we include a time of confession in our worship service. That's a vital step. You know, we'll never really change, and God will never change us until we honestly recognize it, admit that we're flawed, and we need his help. You know, he won't fix a problem we won't admit we have. But when we say, Lord, I'm in a real mess here, one I've gotten myself into and I need your help to get out, God goes to work. The problem is that we fight God too much. You know, maybe we're a little afraid to open ourselves up to his kind of change because we're afraid it might go way beyond the kind of change we think we need. Maybe we think too much change would be too embarrassing or too obvious. You know, maybe we'll lose some of our friends over it. Maybe we need to. Whatever challenges, whatever temptations, whatever uphill battles life has put in the path of your journey to heaven, God is bigger than them all. And the best part is that no matter how you appear on the outside, how tough, how stubborn, even how broken, inside God sees the person you can become because you got a new name the day you were baptized. Christian. It's a connection to God. You never lose. He's already gone to the mat for you on Calvary. Jesus took our place there. He endured our punishment for us and emerged from the empty tomb victorious. Uh, that's what Easter's all about. Let him share that victory for you. You know, sometimes it takes being broken to be made whole. Sometimes it takes getting lost to be found. But in the end, in the end, it's worth it. Amen.
And now may the very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's take